Hi, this is Wilson, pastor of Renew Church OC, a church for imperfect people only. Thanks for joining our podcast. Over the pandemic, a lot of our lives have been reoriented. Whether it's our work, school, friendships, or church, we've become comfortable with a new normal because of COVID. Many of us are asking what church is and how important is it really? Can I be a strong Christian without the church? Or can I go to church in PJs and off a screen for the rest of my life? I hope this series helps you move away from cultural norms and beliefs about church and brings us back into God's word and heart for the local church. Enjoy the sermon. All right, welcome back, everyone. Thanks for sharing. Zoe, did you have someone to share with? Talk to Kenneth. Did he participate? All right. I think when I think about um, comparing, I just think about how we are almost raised to compare ourselves to others. Our, at, a, at our um, piano recital, when we look at our grades and how we rank against the rest of the class, when we think about sports and beating another team or being the best player. And then, of course, social media came in and helped us compare ourselves in every single way to our friends and people and um, everyone else around us. We look at people's Instagram posts and we're like, oh man, this mom is making all organic bread from yeast, you know? And like, why am I giving my child Wonder Bread? They're probably gonna die. Or we're thinking about how beautiful this other person is or how their lifestyle of travel and being rich. We are born into a society that compares themselves. And even at church, it's hard to get away from that. As a pastor, it's hard to get away from comparing our church to the churches around us, from comparing my preaching to the preaching around us, especially when we're at COVID and every pastor is preaching on another YouTube channel. You know, how do you not compare all of those different facets? I remember when I was younger, uh, bench pressing was like the only thing guys cared about, like how much you bench, right? This is back in early 2000s. And uh, that was my pride and joy. I go to the gym. There's many facets to fitness, by the way. There's cardio. There's flexibility. There's us, other muscles in your body. But all I wanted to do was outbench my friends, right? And uh, I was very proud because I got to bench with all the black guys. They were huge. And I warmed up with two plates. None of you women care or understand. But I threw on two plates each side. I just started warming up throwing the bar around, right? And then I progressed. My highest was three plates, and I was done. And and that's when we talked about fitness, all I asked was, like, do you bench press? Because I can't run a mile. I have terrible knees, you know? (laughs) I didn't work on my, my, my hamstring. It was all about bench pressing. And I wonder how we take the ways that we compare ourselves in the rest of the world and bring it into our church life and our spiritual life as well. Because if we're in the lifestyle of comparing, if that's our eyes, if that's our heart, then that's how we'll exist in every category, including our spiritual life. And this was how Corinth operated as well. They were similar to us in Los Angeles. In the Corinth city where Paul is writing this letter to, they were an meritocracy, which meant that they weren't born into social economic classes. You weren't born into royalty or into peasanthood and locked in forever. They were a port city. 
And they were huge in commerce, probably one of the richest city in, in the Roman Empire. And people could go up the ranks of society in wealth, in prestige, in politics, in military accolade. And so everyone was comparing themselves to each other. And I think that's why it bled into the church. It says in 1 Corinthians chapter 3, 1 through 4, Brothers and sisters, I could not address you as people who live by the Spirit, but as people who are still worldly, mere infants in Christ. Wow, that's harsh. If you call my four-year-old son a baby, he will get mad, right? And, and Paul's talking to all these adults, telling them they're infants. I gave you milk, not solid food, for you were not yet ready for it. Indeed, you are not, still not ready. You are still worldly. For since there is jealousy and quarreling among you, are you not worldly? Are you not acting like mere humans? For one says, I follow Paul, and another, I follow Apollos. Are you not mere human beings? I think about this passage, and, and Paul is talking to an audience, saying that your comparing, jealousy, quibbling is evidence of your immaturity in Christ. And again, all of us compare, but to the degree that it consumes us, to the degree that we are always looking around judging others is a measure, one of the measures in which we exemplify our immaturity. So in the next slide, how am I jealous or envious? And what are other signs of unhealth as I serve the Lord? And I think about specifically as Paul was writing in the context of, of church life, in the context of our spiritual life. But it's easy, again, one bleeds into the other, right? So comparing my position to others. How come they get to lead a small group? How come this person gets to lead worship? How come they're seen and recognized, but everything I do feels like it's sliding under the radar? How am I, be, am I being acknowledged? Are people thanking me after I move 150 chairs? Do they even know I'm the one moving it? Right? Do they even know that I wake up at 7 a.m., which I'm thankful for, guys, uh, putting together the sound system? No, no one sees me. I'm not valued. I'm not seen. It's easy to compare our workload with the people around us. Right? This guy walks into church 30 minutes late, 20 minutes late, and, I, and I've, I've been carrying this church on my shoulders. I serve on multiple teams. I tithe. And why is it that I'm doing all these things and, this, and almost everyone else is just coming in whenever they want to? And, of course, comparing our lives to one another as well. Again, I, I don't think that this is unique to you. I also don't think you're exempt from it. But I feel like there's moments in our church where this has been defining when we were a little bit younger. That people have said this over and over again. And... And, and Paul is saying that that's actually a sign of our, of our immaturity. How do we get away from comparing ourselves to others? When that's the fishbowl, the culture that we live in. How do we not look at the person on Instagram or across the room and think about our beauty compared to theirs? Or our wealth? Or our, or our education? How do, we, how do we not have the first five minutes of conversation be about who we are instead of what we've done in comparison to them. Well, here's what Paul says in, in chapter 3, verse 5 to 9. And we're, gonna, we're trying to go through the book of Corinthians within it, a, 
a year time span. So there's times where we'll move faster. And this is one of those times. We're skipping some verses at the end. What, after all, is Apollos? And what is Paul? Only servants through whom you have come to believe, as the Lord has assigned to each his task. I planted the seed, Apollo watered it, but God has been making it grow. So neither the one who plants nor the one who waters is anything, but only God who makes it grow. Next passage. The one who plants and the one who waters have one purpose, and they will each be rewarded according to their own labor. For we are God's co-workers in God's service. You are God's field, God's building. By the grace God has given me, I laid a foundation as a wise builder, and someone else is building on it. But each of you should build with care, for no one will lay any foundation other than the one already laid, which is Christ Jesus. So what Paul is saying is that there is a foundation that, Paul, that God has laid and for us to integrate our life and service into. And unless we're part of this big arc of redemption, of him redeeming people to himself, of building off of the gospel, and him, his mission on earth to bring us home, our work isn't really valuable. It doesn't have eternal value and worth. But as we build on that foundation, we build it simply as co-workers in Christ. And we are all assigned, as it says in the last passage, a, a task. Each of us has specific tasks to do. Each of us has a specific story to live within the story of God. And are we doing that faithfully? And each of us will be awarded in the way that we've lived our life before the Lord. In the specific story he's called us into. Let me summarize this. In the next slide it says, We have a God-given unique story and purpose to contribute to his worship and redemptive work. When we embrace our unique story, when you embrace your unique story, you stop comparing your life to others and you allow others to live their story. You know, like how do you compare Moses with David? How do you do that? How do you, how do you say, oh, Moses obviously lived a better life. He parted the Red Sea. Like that's kind of huge. But David slayed giants. No one, no one compares Joseph, right, to Esther they all had a very specific story to play. They had a specific role to accomplish. Moses, God's story for him was to lead the people out of Egypt. And then God said to David, be an exemplary kingdom that, that is a foreshadow of how I will rule the earth. But then he stops David when David wants to build a temple and he says, that's not a part of your story. It's not that he didn't have the resources or the talent or the intellect. But God's gifted that story to Solomon. What are the story, what is the story, the talents, the gifts, the resources that he wants you to embrace and to live out? And what are the parts of your story that he's saying, let go of that? That's not a part of your story. And it's okay. Let someone else live that part of my story. But who I really love is, I love Ruth. I love that her story was that her husband died, and her sister's husband died. And Naomi's standing in front of her and saying, God struck me. I have nothing. I can't make you another son. I'm too old. Go back to your homeland. She wasn't a Jew. And Naomi's story is saying, where you go, I will go. 
Your people will be my people. Your God will be my God. She goes into um, Israel, and they live impoverished lives. There's a law in the Old Testament that says, if you plant a field, leave, don't like clean it. Leave some behind for the foreigners, for the widows, for those who have nothing, so that they have something to eat. And that's the life she lived. She just went to Boaz's field and cleaned it and, and ate out of what he left behind. And then they fall in love. It's a pretty simple story. There's no waters parting. There's no kingdom to be ruled. There's no giants to be slain. But she lived a beautiful story before the Lord. And her story is wrapped into the rest of Scripture. We don't know what story God has, but whatever story we have to God, if we're living it, whether it's mundane or spectacular, if we faithfully live the story he has for us, it's beautiful to him. Right? Like, I don't get more rewards for, making, for preaching a sermon than Tony and Toffee making coffee with joy and faithfulness weekly. They come out, they make coffee for us, and there's, they do it with love in their hearts. And, and I'm like, man, when, when God sees them make coffee, when God sees you move chairs or sound equipment, does maybe you get a greater reward than me because maybe you're doing it with more joy more focused on him, more purity than being on stage. And you're just faithfully living out your call. You know, the story of Job is, is difficult. His story was suffering. He was marred in it. Satan struck down his families, his children. He buried all of his kids. And then his health was struck. And then his friends abandoned them. And his wealth was taken away. And somehow this story was God's story for him. Are we willing to say our story is less than God's glory and worship? But it's in the depth of his depression and of his nakedness and despair that God speaks to him face-to-face, in conversation, one chapter after another. I don't know if anyone gets to meet God like Job. God calls him into a life of suffering. We don't have a theology of suffering, so we don't get that. But Jesus was called to suffer for God's glory as well. Jesus was called into a life of service and then the cross, and then bearing our sins. Can we live faithfully for the Lord our story in, in our greatest accomplishments and accolades and in the moments and seasons and sometimes lifetimes of suffering as well? But when you embrace your story, when you see how you fit in the picture of God, you stop looking at the stories of others. You stop saying, oh, here's, here's what I'm doing. Now, what, what are they doing? Us knowing our story and living it out allows others to live their stories and live it out as well. It takes us out of the mentality of looking around and comparing ourselves to others. The second point, I only have two. God will not only test what you do, but why you do it. If anyone builds on this foundation using gold, silver, costly stones, wood, 
hay or straw, their work will be shown for what it is. Because the day will bring it to light. It will re be revealed with fire, the fi and the fire will test the quality of each person's work. If what was, has been built survives, the builder will receive a reward. If it is burned up, the builder will suffer loss, but yet will be saved, even though only as one escaping through the flames. So Paul is using an analogy that all of us are building out our lives, right? We're all building something. We're all spending our life on something, our talents, our resources on something. For some of us, we're building for the Lord. Not only externally, the way that we serve him, but internally, our motivations are for him. And so he does gold, silver, and costly stones are one set of, of building for the Lord. And those materials were used for the temple. Those materials are not only, not only survive fire, but are refined by it. It shows its purity as fire comes through. Wood, hay, and straw are used to build uh, people's homes. And those are all consumable by fire. And the great day is the judgment day where we stand before the Lord and he examines our work. Not only what we did, but why we did it. Why am I preaching today? Well, I had a childhood where I got rejected a lot and my voice was unknown. And when I preach, I get a mic and you're listening to me. When I was a kid, I had no friends. And as a pastor, I spent 30 hours a week befriending people. Is that why I preach? Absolutely. I also hope that you hear God's voice. I also love you. I also desire to allow his word to be known. You see, for Paul, he's saying that our motives and our work will be tested. But even for him, in verse 3 and 4, he says we don't even know our own hearts. That we can't just assume, hey, I'm doing this because I love the Lord and you guys. And actually having all of that Christian lingo can actually hide our hearts from even ourselves. We should recognize that we're all mixed bags. That we all have good intention and bad intentions and they're together. Every time we serve and do something for the Lord. And that's what Paul's saying. I care very little if I'm judged by you or any other, any human court. Indeed, I don't even judge myself. My conscience is clear. I'm trying to work out the pride and selfishness. But that does not make me innocent. It is the Lord who judges me. You know, when we serve God, whether it's at, with foster, whether it's in our homes to the children, whether it's at work or at church, we need to wrestle before the Lord, before the judgment day, God, examine my heart so that I would be building with, with material that survives the fire. And in, on this earth, as God examines us, we'll never be totally, we'll never give a pure worship to the Lord. But we can wrestle with the evil in our heart and diminish it. And then the second thing he says is, judge nothing before the appointed time. Wait until the Lord comes. He will bring to light what is hidden in darkness and will expose the motives of the heart. At that time, each will receive their praise from God. Who are you to judge someone else's servant? To their own master, servants stand or fall. They will stand, for the Lord is able to make them stand. 
Paul is saying that we have enough to worry about. <laughs> One of the ways we don't compare is that we embrace our own story. We understand what we're called to do, and we live that out faithfully, and we're not looking around. God's called them to do something else. And the second way we don't compare is that we have enough to account for as we envision standing before the king, holding out our lives. That we can't even fully understand our motives. But it takes a lifetime just to work on that. And Paul's like, you work on, keep your eyes on your own work. Right? You work on yourself. Do the things God's called you to do. And don't judge the motives of others. If you don't even have full knowledge of why you do the good in your life, why do you think you could pin someone to the wall on their motives? Even if you see it accurately, I've seen people state like, oh, this person leading this thing, they're doing it for this reason. Are you sure you know that? And even if you know that, have you, like, your judgment of them shows your own motives, shows your own immaturity. And your judgment of them places you as the judge, as the master. And God's like, that's not your role. Your role is to be a co-worker in Christ. My role is to judge their motives. I just think that that's an area our church can grow in. That we can release each other to the Lord. It's, I do want to caveat that, that this isn't speaking about people's actions. This is speaking about their motives. This is speaking about them doing something for the Lord and you saying that their motives are wrong. But again, I, I try to say this multiple times a year. If, if you ever hear of someone sexually assaulting a person at our church, our leadership wants to know about it. If you as a woman feel unsafe, even if it's not sexual assault, you just feel advanced on, you've said no, or it makes you feel uncomfortable, we want to help shepherd you you and that other person through this process. When you see someone do something outside of our ethics document, but they're leading, let me know. Let our leadership know because we can judge the actions of others, but it's our leadership's role to steward them in and out of service, not your role, okay? If you're not on the leadership team, if you're not a pastor, let us know, we want to know, but you are, your role isn't to determine in your heart or in gossip, whether someone should be serving or not. Does that make sense? Do you guys see that distinction? <clears throat> you know, I think about our, our leadership team and how we have done this well. <laughs> and I'm pretty honest about our, my failings, our church's failings. And I also want to be honest about our strengths. The next picture is Pastor Dave with Nina. He's sweeping up the, um, like the top floor as we're going to do outdoor service in COVID. You know, when David, uh, Pastor Dave and I met, I was a gopher for him because we were at a pastor conference. He was a lead pastor along with others, and I was an intern. I'm, like, trying to grab coffee, moving bags, and then we were in his room. Uh, I, was, I was, like, we were roommates for that conference, and I remember telling him to, to uh, help me improve as a preacher. So I played a sermon. I subjected him to listen to one of my early sermons, which are all bad, and then he was, like, helping me grow. And then... Maybe seven, eight years later, we're, we're on staff together. And I remember interviewing him and talking him through the, um, we're just kind of seeing if we fit. And he says, Wilson, I'm a really strong preacher. 
And I've gone to other churches where I'm using my gift and the pastors get jealous and they try to kick me out or they try to turn people against me. Are you okay sharing the stage with me? Are you really going to be okay with that? And I said, Dave, I'm tired. I'm really tired of preaching. <laughs> I don't want to do it every week. But it is. It is humbling to preach next to a phenomenal preacher. He's honestly one of the, my favorite preachers. I've listened to a lot of guys. He's excellent. I've learned a lot from him. My mom was like, you used to be my favorite preacher at the church. I was like, thanks, mom. You know? <laughs> but we are each other's greatest fans. Every time he preaches, I call him and I text him and I tell him how it blessed me. And every time I preach, he does the same for me. When people call him Pastor Dave, he says, hey, if you're not going to call Wilson Pastor Wilson, don't call me Pastor Dave. And I just see the way, and, and at the same time, I'm just leaning on him. I remember a really hard year that he was on staff, and he's gone through his own church pain, and I just remember sharing vulnerably my hurts. And he just came around me like a big brother. He says, I, I've, hurt, I've been hurt in those ways too. And he just cared for me. When I sit under his teaching, I just, I just receive it as if he's my pastor. And then for him, just working as a staff member under me and wanting my vision for our church to flourish. When I think about past, uh, Pastor Christy and Dr. Ken in the next slide, you know, Pastor Christy's more educated than me. Pastor Ken and Christy are, uh, Dr. Ken and Christy are more godly than me. And they're willing to join my team somehow and help us push this church forward. Listen to my sermons. You know, it's humbling to preach to them. And me and Nina have come to them in early, uh, earlier years where our marriage was struggling and asked them to mentor us. I just texted Dr. Ken this week and said, hey, can you meet up with me? I have some, I need men, I need, I would like to grow in my leadership. And there's this mutual submission. And then I think about um, uh, Jonathan and Kristen Whitmore in the next slide. These are basically the elders of our church. Dr. Ken and Christy are not elders, but we just drag them into all the major decisions with us. Uh, Jonathan and Kristen, I remember meeting Jonathan at Cal State Fullerton. And we had this vision of launching Epic. And he, he's been on Cal State Fullerton for about seven years at the time. Had a very vibrant crew movement. And he's like, and then he just started coaching me. He taught me how to put a group together. He gave us funding. He allowed a staffer to work alongside of us. And he just walked me through the pro process as a seasoned missionary at Cal State Fullerton. And I told him, if we disagree on a leadership decision for Epic, I, I want to trust you. I want to submit decisions to you. And probably once we had a disagreement, and I said, okay, let's do what, what you're thinking. Because I see myself as being coached by him. But then we started up Renew, and I asked him to join our staff team, our, our, our eldership, and he's never, we have no off-ramp. So he's been there for like eight years now. And, um, and on the leadership team, he's, he's a co-equal elder, right? But he desires, he believes in the vision that God's placed in my heart. And he says, Wilson, how do I support you in this vision? And on campus, I'm like, Jonathan, how do I support you in reaching the campus? And we just go back and forth for years on the campus. During the week, I'm on his team. At the church, he's on my team. And throughout our leadership team, there's this mutual submission to one another. 
This, this, there's a desire to honor each other, to speak well of each other. It's not that we don't see each other's weaknesses, but instead of exposing them, instead of pointing at them, we cover for each other and we say, let's, let's do this thing that Paul and Apollos did. It's the immature Christians trying to split us up. But we are about one purpose, one God, being co-servants to the Lord. I hope that as younger brothers and sisters, many of you in our young adult ministry, that we would be a model of leadership for you. I am so proud of the way that we lead. We lead with our wives as well, with Joanne and Nina and uh, Kristen Whitmore. And we, we ask them to be a part of every major decision we make, to speak into, uh, to speak into our our. our our direction and our vision. We, we're leaning into the voice of the mothers of the church. And there was one specific decision we made very recently where I told Jonathan and, and Dave, as we're talking about, I said, we're not, I'm not willing to make this decision without the women uh, speaking into it because it's, they know more than us here. They speak into all of our decisions, but unless I hear from everyone, I'm like calling them, texting them, let me know what you're thinking. We need your voice. That's my prayer for all of our church. That we wouldn't quarrel. We wouldn't be jealous. We wouldn't judge. We wouldn't sit examining people's motives. We would be leaders who love each other, who lift each other up. Because we got a big task to do, guys. It's not about running a service. It's about kids getting abused and not finding a home, and we're saying we're family to them. It's about a special needs community that, that feels isolated, and we're saying come and be family with us. It's about parents who have gone through domestic violence and at-risk youth, and are saying we want to be Jesus to the community around us. You know, we, churches fight because it's all about them. It's about, all about this community and, and getting power and getting in. But we don't want to be about that. When you're focused on the right things, when you, I was a counselor at RFKC as the junior counselor, right? The lowest role you can have. But it didn't matter. We're just serving together. We're serving across denominations, across gender, across ethnicities, across uh, social economics, across every spectrum. And, we're, and all we care about are these kids. And they tell us in the training over and over again, it's not about you, it's about these kids. So Wilson, you can't take your Tempur-Pedic mattress into the camp. Like you can't take it. When we're focused on Jesus' mission, when there's something bigger than this for us, we come together. We honor each other. We celebrate each other's stories, each other's parts in the body. We honor the parts that are less seen, and we become not just any body, we become the body of Christ. We become Jesus, Jesus' hands and feet and voice and eyes to this city. Father, we're so grateful. I'm so grateful for this church. I'm super grateful for our pastors and our staff, the way we love you and love each other. And I pray that into the rest of our ministry.
that those of us who have been sitting in judgment, nailing people to the wall, assuming motives every time they come on stage, would they repent? Would we mature? Will we believe in the story you've called us? Will we examine our own motives? And will we honor each other? In Jesus' name, amen.